Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Turnout. We started this series in the past, understanding the origin and history of our ongoing fight for voter rights. And as we wrap this series about an issue that doesn't look like it's going to be solved anytime soon, We want to consider its future. Where do we go from here? What lessons can we take with us? And what impact might this election have on our ongoing push for a more inclusive democracy, a more perfect union? Because Americans saw up close precisely how the election system works, what its flaws are, there's a real opportunity finally now to mobilize around passing laws that actually shore up our elections and protect voting rights. Later, we'll explore the future of voting rights with a few of our previous guests. But first, how do we start to understand what we just went through? How do we put the 2020 presidential race into context? To answer that, we took a virtual trip to Appalachia. I have very little signal. I'm in a very mountainous area, and basically, if you're not in the same little holler with the tower, that's that's it. Greg Cruy is a middle school social studies teacher. If you hear my new puppy bark, uh, I've got a dog that uh, we adopted that's four or five months old, and it barks at everything. <laughs> and it's his job to lay a civics foundation for our next generation of voters to explain our system, our elections, our democracy. I work in war west virginia in mcdowell county with sixth seventh and eighth graders and uh, i'm also the president of the american federation of teachers in mcdowell county i'm an activist i'm a church musician i'm a husband i'm a dog owner uh, i could go on mcdowell county sits in the southernmost edge of west virginia in the central appalachians while it was once a center for coal production it's now one of the poorest areas in the country. McDowell County is a place that has been robbed. Its natural resources were stripped away. 
uh, and it was left with very little. And, and I'm talking, of course, about coal and, and uh, the description I'm, I'm giving probably describes most of southern West Virginia. Uh, it's a place of contrasts today. On the one hand, it's poor, and on the other hand, it's rich at the same time. It, it's, it's economically depressed. It gives you kind of a rural rust belt feel. The families are torn up by drugs. The opioid epidemic here is horrible. Grandparents are raising kids because the biological parents are often so strung out or in jail or dead. The people feel the weight of worrying about how they're going to scrape by next month and wondering who's going to die next, either from drugs or just stress of poverty in their lives. On the other hand, there's a lot of pride that people feel about just being here and having made it in this rugged part of Appalachia. This is a community filled with military veterans who served their country well. It's one of the highest rates of military service in the country. The community is salted with little churches that are far more concerned with loving and helping people than they are with politics. Uh, and some of the nicest, most generous, most self-deprecating people that you could ever hope to meet live in the communities around my school. McDowell County is home to about 18,000 people, the vast majority of whom are white. I think McDowell County has one of the largest black populations in West Virginia, but it's still only at 10 or 12%. We're a very white community. And in elections, this community tends to vote red. We have a very conservative community up here, and it's historically belonged to the Democratic Party. And we're in a transition at this point where it's becoming more and more acceptable to switch parties and call yourself a Republican. I tell my kids, today we think of Democrats as being liberals and Republicans as being conservatives, but it's only been that way in my lifetime. There are probably more registered Democrats than there are Republicans. But 80% of the county voted for President Trump. I've had kids this year come in wearing face masks that have Trump 2020 on them. Uh, and, you know, that's that's cute. Uh, that there's nothing wrong with that. They, they, they look at me and they know what I think. And it, it's, it's interesting. They come in with bumper sticker sort of views of politics with the, you know, the Democrats are going to take our guns. Uh, we need to build the wall. They just, they're on the Trump train and they'll tell you, you know, they're on the Trump train. And um, it puzzles them if you ask why. It, you know, they, they, don't, they don't understand that there's a, a community of people out there in other parts of America who aren't on the Trump train. I think that key is to get them thinking about issues, uh, not just people. They have to understand that it requires thought, that it's complicated. I try very hard to talk about issues and um, to, to divorce those issues from parties or candidates and have them think about immigration or think about gun rights or welfare, health care, the environment. Uh, you know, and get them to see that those issues are multifaceted and complicated. My goal is, is critical thinking. I'm not trying to persuade somebody to believe one thing or another. I mean, these are little kids. I just want them to develop the skills that they need to 
understand what's going on and and decide what they think is best and take part in the decision-making process. I teach a unit every year on fact versus opinion, and I, I keep it completely separate from anything that has to do with politics. You know, I work very hard to get my students to be able to distinguish types of statements. Is that a statement of fact or is that a statement of opinion? And to feel an obligation if they think it's a statement of fact, to decide whether or not it's true or false. A statement of fact, I tell them, is something that can be verified by sources that reasonable people can agree on. And um, it's their obligation, if it's important to them, to go find out whether or not the statement is true. If it's a statement of fact, they can go look that up. If it's a statement of opinion, then it's their obligation to decide whether or not they agree with the person's opinion. I teach it every year. And so for my kids, uh, repetition is the heart of learning and they get it three times in three years. And hopefully by the time they leave here, they can tell the difference between fact and opinion. Mr. Cruy also teaches the importance of civic participation by example, which is why he doesn't shy away from showing how he engages in the election process. I had somebody comment that students should never know their teacher's personal political views. And I, I find that incredibly naive. My wife, who is a retired principal, and I are involved in mentoring kids. We're part of the community. We visit their churches. We work at a Christian camp in the summer that many of our students go to. And they know I have a sign in my yard and a bumper sticker on my vehicle. You know, so the idea that I can prevent them from figuring out who I support. I don't think I give up the right to participate in politics because I become a government employee. And as a social studies teacher, if I did keep it from them, I would model exactly the opposite of what I hope to achieve with them, which is I model participation because I want them to participate. And um, I don't know how to get around that. The kids come into my room knowing that I have a Biden sticker on my vehicle and they look at me and they say, do you really support Vice President Biden? And uh, I say, well, you know, the question is, who do you support and why do you feel that way? Let's talk about it. And I try and turn the tables on them and, and make them develop the skills to articulate why they like somebody. And if their answer is, I like President Trump because mom and dad like President Trump, that's good enough. Uh, you know, and I, I try my best to affirm that in them. I don't, I don't denigrate that at all. I try my best never to be disrespectful uh, of the president because I don't think that gets me anywhere, and I, I don't think it's professional. I'm not trying to shape personal political opinions at the moment so much as I'm working on a set of skills, and these kids are going to be in school for another five or six years, and that chance to shape those skills, I'm laying a foundation that I hope somebody in high school will pick up and you know build on. I have to keep that perspective of, do these kids know what they need to know or have the skills that they need to have to participate? The kids whose situation in life is the worst, the disenfranchised, the people who economic development policy and uh, decisions by local government are going to help or hurt them the most, and yet they don't know how to take part and participate. 
those are the people that hurt the most if we if we don't have adequate social studies instruction. But, Mr. Cruy says, as a middle school teacher in one of the poorest regions of the country, civics vocabulary and lessons on the importance of voting often take a back seat to more immediate concerns. I'm a first responder to poverty. So I, I go to school and I deal with students because they need care. If on top of that, they understand academics, that's an added bonus. But without the foundation of them knowing that they're cared for and that, that somebody's concerned about their welfare, you don't get any of the other stuff. And, you know, we're looking for a way to shape strong adults. If they don't feel loved, if they don't have a good self-image, if they don't make it to adulthood, it doesn't matter. If that, you know, that, that's the goal. The goal is to produce strong, healthy adults. That was Greg Cruy, middle school social studies teacher from War, West Virginia. Coming up, the biggest takeaways from the 2020 election and their impact on the future of voting rights. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now that the 2020 presidential race is behind us, well, almost, and with that modicum of hindsight, I wanted to get a sense of this election, of its place in our voting history, its potential impact on democracy, and what lessons we might glean from it. So we decided to check in with some of our previous guests. My name is Wendy Weiser. I am vice president for democracy at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. This election was a really unprecedented election in multiple dimensions. First, and and happily, we have an unprecedented level of voter turnout. More Americans voted in this election than in any other election in American history, um, the highest percentage in over a century. Um, And that is great news for democracy. The more people participate, the stronger our democracy. We conducted an election during a once in a um, century pandemic that obviously created serious and unprecedented challenges. Um, it, It changed the way many Americans voted across the entire country in a really short time frame. And we successfully accomplished that election under such challenging circumstances. If we look at how we voted, we we voted in um, new ways, and and in that way, our election was unprecedented. We had a huge surge in absentee and mail voting and a huge surge in early voting, Americans voting before Election Day. So we spread out the election process. Americans took advantage of all the different options available to them. And so that was really new, and we were able to accomplish that and that massive change, again, in a short period of time. It was unprecedented in some negative ways as well. We did see a huge surge in efforts at voter suppression, targeting voters, trying to make it harder for specific groups, particularly black and brown voters, to participate in the election. We saw a surge, not as much as was feared, of people actually trying to interfere with the voting process and disenfranchise voters at the polls on election day and during the early voting period. The other thing that was really unprecedented was the push by the campaign of the president of the United States and those working with him, both to undermine the integrity of the election and to try to make it harder for eligible Americans to vote 
or even to, after the fact, disenfranchise eligible Americans who did participate in the election. And that is not only unprecedented, but shocking and ongoing and something we've not seen anything remotely like it before in American history. I am Gilda Daniels. I'm an associate professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law. I'm also litigation director at Advancement Project National Office and the author of Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America. The fact that we had more than 150 million votes and almost 80 million people voted for uh, one candidate uh, is astounding because we thought that the system would break under the weight of people actually doing what what we're supposed to do, which is actually vote. We don't anticipate that people will participate at the levels that they should. And so that's why you have long lines, because you don't have enough machines, you don't have enough workers, you don't have enough ballots, those kinds of things. So if we could could raise our expectations, (laughs) one of the things I've learned from my children is that they rise to the level of my expectations. So I think if we raise our expectations, I think we will have a, we would have a better system. I'm Tyler OKK, Vote at 16, youth organizer with Power California and a second year student at the University of Chicago studying public policy. In this election, we saw that it seemed like across the board, there was this push and enthusiasm behind getting more people to vote. We saw it from corporations, we saw it from non-governmental agencies, grassroots organizations like ours. But my fear moving forward is that will we continue to keep this emphasis on access to the ballot and um, the provision of the the right to vote to everyone? Will we keep this energy up when maybe the stakes aren't in the favor of the, the corporations that are invested or the organizations that are invested in the election somewhere or another? However, when it comes to the policies that states like California and other progressive states adopt around voting, I think there will continue to be major pushes around how we make the ballot more accessible. I think that mail-in ballot will continue to be a constant. I think that ballot drop-off boxes will continue to be a constant. I think even we'll be having more conversations about how we digitize and make more of these things accessible. And I think the coronavirus pandemic has allowed us a testing ground for many of these avenues to the ballot that weren't explored before. And I'm hopeful to see how how well we can expand, how we allow people access to the ballot box, but also how we have conversations about how to vote and the procedure around voting. I think this election has really created a culture around voting and civic participation that I that I know will continue. But like I said, my anxieties are around um, the buy-in that corporations have, which we've seen is usually in alignment with their economic interests at all times. One of the takeaways from this election is that it took way too much mobilization outside of government just to shore up the basic right to vote. We did not invest sufficiently in our election and we came very perilously close to not being able to provide an opportunity for everybody to vote safely and to a situation where there could have been widespread election meltdowns if we didn't have that mobilization of resources and support from outside of government, we could have had a real disaster on our hands. And it also took way too much just to ensure that Americans knew their voting rights and had those voting rights protected and were um, not thwarted by unfair obstacles that are still there in our election laws Um, and that can still be taken advantage of by those who want to 
thwart voter participation. Coming out of this election, we need to invest more in our elections because we cannot count on this level of mobilization and public propping up of the election system that we saw this year in our future elections. I mean, that is unusual. That was, it, it was a great show of patriotism and support for our democracy, but we cannot demand that from Americans every election just to be able to have free and fair elections and to continue as a functioning democracy. And we need to shore up our voting rights laws and our voting rights protections. Because if we don't restore the critical protections of the Voting Rights Act, which are there to prevent discrimination in the voting system, if we don't um, actually create a baseline set of voting rules and voting protections for every American so that people can conveniently access the voting system, there will be continued manipulation of the system to target voters for disenfranchisement. And let's be clear, these are not targeted at every voter. In this election, we saw extreme and blatant targeting of African-American and other um, voters of color for disenfranchisement, both before the election and in the post-election disputes. This cannot be acceptable in our voting system going forward. The biggest takeaway that I think we can take from this election is that it's more than one day, that it's the work that has to be done months before, even years before, that enabled us to have this large uh, voter turnout and that the fight continues. It's about giving people the ability to vote early, to vote by mail, to vote curbside, to, you know, for persons who are returning citizens or formerly incarcerated persons um, to, to vote. It's, it's, it was about laying that groundwork months before, years before, to try to make sure that access was a possibility and that people could utilize the right. And it's the work that happens after election day, work that we have to do as citizens in ensuring that the folk are representing us, right? And it's like, we still need to be contacting our congresspersons, even though this is a lame duck session. So what I'm hopeful that we got out of this election season is that it is in, indeed a season and not just an election day, that the work goes on, you know, before, during and afterwards to make sure that this democracy works to its fullest potential. We should be under no illusions that all is well in the country right now. And there's so much work to be done. So as long as we continue to say that we care for our communities and that we're invested in political change, it means that we're involved in this work all the time and, and even beyond voting, right? So if you can't vote, if the next opportunity to vote will be in two years, there are things that you can do to build power and to continue to educate people around you so that they're prepared to make critical decisions when it comes to voting or when it comes to um, running for office one day, maybe. But I think um, we should always stay focused on the material conditions in our communities. And I would say as of right now, they have yet to change or get better. And that's something that we need to focus on. We're going to take a short break. But when we come back, hope. Yep, you heard it. Hope. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune into what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Let's be honest here. We deserve some good news, right? Luckily, there were some positive lessons from our 2020 election experience. Our guest, Tyler O'KK. Gilda Daniels and Wendy Weiser share what gives them hope for the future of our democracy. First, here's Wendy. The sheer number of people, not only that showed their belief in that vision and in that system, but that were willing to sort of mobilize and dedicate resources and time to realize that and to make sure it happens in the face of so many threats this year is a strength that gives me a lot of hope for our ability to fix it going forward. And I think that we can't let up. This was not just one election. Those threats are still present. Those um, ideals and, and strategies are now going to be deployed by others in the future. And we can't let up until we put in place much more solid guardrails in the system to prevent its undermining and to ensure that every eligible American has a fair opportunity to participate conveniently and without discrimination. What makes me hopeful is my uh, children, because I think they were engaged 
at a level that I certainly was not engaged at that age. So they certainly make me hopeful and young people in general, right? And I, I called it moving from protest to power. That they moved from the protests of the spring and the summer over the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and um, and George Floyd to going to the uh, voting booth because they actually, young people actually turned out in high levels as well. So it wasn't just about Democrats and Republicans. It was about uh, groups of people who generally don't participate who turned out to vote. And I think that that is certainly what makes me hopeful. And I'm hopeful that it, that it, that it continues uh, beyond certainly November 3rd of 2020. Where I pull hope from is how people have really sat down and reconsidered how they think about race relations in this country. I think with the contradictions that we've seen with the coronavirus pandemic, um, seeing that people are not able to have stable access to food, stable access to housing, stable access to their jobs. This moment where every two years we're in a moment of depression and chaos, I think that's something that people are really sitting down and interrogating. And I'm hoping that that analysis that people are making privately leads to a shift in political convictions when it comes to also how we vote, but more importantly, how we advocate and what our expectations are of our political leaders. You know, the racial reckoning that we've had with the response to police brutality, as well as the contradictions that the coronavirus pandemic has shown to both our systems and economy is what's gonna keep people critical and also keep people focused on building a stronger, more resilient future. Although we had more than 150 million people cast ballots. We certainly had a higher percentage of turnout at 66%, but that's 66%. That's better than we've done in the past, but why don't we have 80% turnout or 90% turnout? My ultimate goal is universal suffrage. I'm not happy with 66% turnout. And right now in this country, we do not have a system where uh, people can register uh, on the same day. Same day voter registration should be universal in this country, right? This idea that if you don't register 30 days before the election, then you can't participate. That's a longer waiting period than we have for someone to get a gun. So we still have these rules that just don't make sense. If we're going to have a democracy, then the vote has to be central and, and the ability for people to access the vote has to be made easier. Uh, and I think we, you know, I'll continue to work until that, until that happens. That was professor and author Gilda Daniels. You also heard Tyler Okeke of Power California and Wendy Weiser of the Brennan Center for Justice. And thank you one more time to Greg Cruy, who, by the way, we found through a fantastic article in the Washington Post written by education reporter Hannah Natanson. Listeners, turnout may be ending, but the fight for voting rights goes on. To find out how you can help, check out the description of the episode you're listening to right now, where you'll find links to all of our guests, their organizations, as well as related and helpful books and articles. And you can keep up with me and what I'm up to and what I'm covering on your favorite social media channels and by signing up for our morning newsletter. It's called Wake Up Call. Just go to katiecurric.com to subscribe. What can I say? People love it. And for more of me in your ears, keep an eye out for a brand new season of my podcast coming out in February 2021. Until then, I'm Katie Couric. Thank you so much for listening. 
and stay engaged, democracy fighters. Turnout is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric and Courtney Litz. Supervising producers, Lauren Hansen. Associate producers, Derek Clements, Eliza Costas, and Emily Pinto. Editing by Derek Clements and Lauren Hansen. Mixing by Derek Clements. Our researcher is Gabriel Loser. And special thanks to my right-hand woman, Adriana Fazio. Meanwhile, yes, I'm Katie Couric. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.